Here's what I'm trying to tell you, um, what I'm going to do. I want to take the, the next four Sundays and use them to identify or pinpoint the key activities of each day of those four days that lead to Thursday, which is when Jesus has the supper with the twelve. We get together, we call it Monday Thursday, we celebrate that the institution of the Lord's Supper, remember? So today, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> this triumphal entry takes place on Sunday or the first day of Holy Week. Next week, we'll come back and look at Monday. And then the next week, Tuesday. You got it? <laughs> Is that clear? I hope so, um, because we're about to begin. And I don't want to lose you. So today we're going to look at the what was the key event on the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. Maybe that helps. That holy week in there, we're going to look at for four weeks. And uh, separate the key events from Monday, I mean from Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. There we go. Now, it reads like this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it doesn't wither and it doesn't fade. It endures forever. Guys, here's the first thing that I want you to know about this story that is familiar to you. We've, you've heard it preached, I'm sure, a dozen times. But here's the first thing that I want you to know. This event being described here is found in all four of the Gospels. Now, gang, uh, when we talk about the synoptic Gospels, we're not to, that doesn't include John. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's only three synoptics. Um, John is not considered a synoptic gospel. So when I say that this story is found in all of the synoptics, including, and in, including John, that's a big deal. Um, for example, the, the parable of the prodigal son, which we love. We love that parable, don't we? 
The parable of the prodigal son, our favorite parable, is found in one gospel. Gospel of Luke. Um, Even the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is the more famous of the two, uh, is found in one gospel. Luke again. How about the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is a big deal. It's the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's found in one gospel. Uh, Parts of it are found in the Gospel of Luke. So we'll just say that the the Sermon on the Mount is found one and a half times in in the New Testament. But, but, But this story, this story about his triumphal entry is found, all the Gospel writers thought it was so important that they included it in their treatments of Jesus's life. Well, is there a reason that they thought it was so important? Oh, I think there is. And so what I want to do with you this morning is that I want to show you five reasons why this story, this event, is such a big deal and why the authors of these Gospels so unnecessary to include it. So here we go. Reason number one why this story is a big deal. Gang, maybe you notice this, but um, or maybe not, uh, but, but woven into it is so much Old Testament background. Did you see it? Well, one of the clearest of it, it stands out when, when Matthew says, they, uh, this is in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he quotes a verse from Zechariah 9 about the donkey thing. Um, so, but that's not the only Old Testament allusion in this passage. There is Psalm 118, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, and Malachi 3. All that have that form the backdrop of the event that we call the triumphal entry. This is, there's something real Old Testamenty about this event. Now, if you're a Jew, as Matthew was, and you're trying to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, what would you do? <clears throat> well, you would most likely show them that what he is and what he's doing is drawn from their Bible, the Old Testament. That Jesus is fulfilling all of those things that were said by the prophets. This thing that's going on here, folks, has very clear, and if you knew your Bible, that is, if they knew their Bible, their Old Testament, they saw it. They saw that this has an Old Testament flavor, a very strong Old Testament flavor to it. Now, um, here's the second reason that I think it's a big deal. Did you, I mean, as I read it, did you see how the, the, the story is just full of paradox? For instance, in verse 3, the Lord needs... You wouldn't normally set those words side by side. The sovereign Lord needs, I mean, you've got deity and dependence. I got a need and yet I'm God. What an enigma, folks. But this is, this is what Jesus' life was full of. I mean, he, um, he bought a boat from which he could teach. 
He borrowed um, some fish and some bread from a 10-year-old boy so that he could feed a multitude. He uh, even was buried in a borrowed grave. Remember that, st- that statement in the Old Testament about um, he was rich, he who was rich became poor? Another little Old Testament hint. But then, of course, you come to this story. And he borrows a donkey on which to sit as he enters in Jerusalem. So not only do you have deity and dependence, you also have um, dignity and poverty. Um, This guy claims to be a king and he's riding on a donkey? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, who comes triumphant into Jerusalem on a donkey? Not a king. You know, if Pilate had been looking out his bedroom window that morning and saw what was this spectacle that was unfolding before him, I'm sure he got quite a chuckle. <clears throat> that is a king. Uh, this man who claims to be a king is riding seated on a donkey. A donkey. Uh, it's a fitting way to enter Jerusalem if you are riding into the jaws of death, which he was, but it wasn't fitting for a king to be riding on a donkey. Paradox, deity and dependence, dignity and poverty, kingliness and a donkey, all a part of this very intriguing story. Here's a third reason why I think this, is, this passage, this event, is such a big deal. Guys, did you notice in verses 3 and 4, uh, no, not 3 and 4, 10 and 11, um, that the whole city was stirred up? In verse 11, and the crowds said, big crowds greet him as he enters the city of Jerusalem. Now, gang, remember, you know what the New Testament says so often. Every time Jesus did something... Um, where he, you know, uh, healed somebody, he would say, no, don't tell anybody. Or he raised somebody from the dead, oh, don't, don't tell anybody. In fact, it's called the messianic secret. He, he, he would do something, but he would say to folks, uh, now don't tell anybody. Folks, on, on most of the previous occasions, when Jesus um, did something big, he rejected all that false enthusiasm and fled the spotlight of publicity. He avoided anything that savored of display. In um, uh, Matthew 16, he tells, his, the, tells the 12, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell them that. Not yet. And when he raised the <coughs> Jairus' daughter from the dead, um, don't tell anybody what I, what I did. That's Mark 5. And after um, the transfiguration, where he revealed himself for who he was, the four of them are walking down the side of the mountain. He says, now listen, don't tell anybody what you just saw until after, uh, you know, I'm the, the crucifixion. Remember John 6? He fed that massive crowd with the, with the loaves and the fishes. And then he sensed that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. So what did he do? He ran. He fled. He hid. Because he didn't want that. There was a a story in John 7 where his family comes to him and says, listen, why don't you go to Jerusalem and do some tricks, and then everybody will know that you're the Messiah. And he said, no, I can't do that. 
And it's not my hour. So the entirety of his three-year ministry, he fled the spotlight. But here, he seems to welcome it. Um, all of that carnal enthusiasm he dampened. But not here. This is the only event, ladies and gentlemen, in the New Testament where this evident tension between his messianic identity and the expectations of the crowd um, come together. Why? Why is it that all three years are like this, but now it's different? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this event known as the triumphal entry is to be a public announcement. It is an announcement to Israel. It is an announcement to Jerusalem that your Messiah has arrived. <clears throat> My hour? The back when I turned that water into wine, what had not yet come? It has now. It wasn't my hour then, but it is now. And everyone in Jerusalem was put on notice. Oh, everyone, you now have a decision to make. Will you embrace this Messiah? Or will you crucify this madman? Folks, Rome had its own style, its own way of entering a city. You remember the general would be on the white stallion out in front and the armies would be marching behind and all the soldiers on the side of the roads were saying, get back, get back, move, step aside. Jesus has his own style too. But his kingdom, you see, is so different. Remember when he was talking to Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate asked him, are you a king? And he said, well, yeah, I am, but I'm not of an earthly kingdom. Guys, this event is a watershed moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Tap down all the enthusiasm. Encourage the enthusiasm. Because now, because of this event, because of the fulfillment of the Old Testament, there's a public announcement being made. Israel, just like Zechariah said, your Messiah has just arrived. And if you knew your Bible, the Old Testament, you'd know that. Now, here's a fourth reason that I think this passage is such a big deal. Did you notice that the crowd is shouting, you know, all this about the son of David and Hosanna? Hosanna is just a Greek word that means save now. But um, most of that crowd here, they're not calling, they were calling for liberation from Roman oppression. But that's not what will be defeated. 
It'll be death and sin and Satan that'll be defeated. But these cries of Hosanna, that's got to stop. In Luke's account of this story, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, now Jesus, you know what that stuff means. Son of David, uh, you get that stop and you get it stopped right now. You remember Jesus' reply? I love it. He says, okay, I, I, I can get that stopped. But if I do, Nature will join in the celebration. The rocks will cry out. I won't need human voices because nature, you know, look at this little donkey that, you know, untamed colt who are notoriously obstreperous. He knows who's who I am. And so do the rocks. I can shut them up. But then nature's going to join in and the rivers are going to clap their hands and the, and the mountains are going to shout and the trees will cry out. <clears throat> Gang, do you remember, do you remember uh, the Lord of the Rings? Did you ever see that? Or did you read the books, the trilogy, the J.R.R. Tolkien trilogy? And in that final battle against Mordor, and the, the forces of Aragon were being defeated... It really looked bad for Aragon and his, and his followers. Aragon's the Christ figure. Do you remember who came to his aid? It was the trees. The trees began to strut over and turn the battle. Because you can shut them up. But then nature's going to join in. And they're going to cry out this and even more. All these vocal fireworks. Do you want them coming from men or trees? Jesus rides into and looks at a city that rejected his love. They don't want a Messiah who rides on donkeys. They want one who's on a stallion in front of an army, a victorious army. So, you see, the reason that this is such an important event is because Jesus is forcing these crowds to make a choice. And it is a stark one, much like the choice that you and I face. It's a choice like On what do you fix your hopes, ladies and gentlemen? Um, on what foundation are you trying to build your life? Power and money and success? If so, then you need to get out of this crowd that's following that man on a donkey. And you need to get in that other one that's following that man on a stallion. You see, this event forces the crowd 
to choose their crowd. And remember, this kingly claim made by Jesus, the one riding on the donkey, in about four days, he's going to be crucified. But the event forces you and me to figure out which crowd we want to be in. Now here's my fifth and final reason for why this is such a important event. Guys, um, the month was Nisan. It was the month of Passover. And Judaism had concocted this vast list of things that you must observe to do Passover correctly. But on this list were some things that they took straight from the Old Testament. For instance, in in Exodus chapter 12, you remember Exodus 12, that's when Israel was still in bondage to Egypt, and uh, they had just witnessed these nine plagues in Egypt, and then God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I got one more, one more, which of course is when the firstborn were slain, remember that? And so in preparation for that, God comes to Moses and says, now Moses, Here's what you got to do. You tell the people that on the 10th day of this this month, I want them to choose a lamb. And um, then on the 14th day of this month, it's right there in Exodus 12. On the 14th day of this month, I want you to tell them to uh, slay that lamb and, you know, paint the, the, the blood on the doorpost. Because on the 10th day, you'll choose it. And four days later, I want you to kill it. So, ladies and gentlemen, do you know what this day is? <clears throat> this day in Matthew 21? It's Lamb Selection Day. Everybody's supposed to go select their lamb. And four days later, the lamb will be slain. Folks, on this Sunday, Jerusalem was in the process of choosing a lamb. And then four days later, They would sacrifice it. So, they had to choose a lamb because of this. And so do you. <clears throat> I 
ganz dumm. The lamb that was chosen by the crowd had four legs. But the lamb only has two. So tell me, have you chosen your lamb yet? As a result of this event, you are being forced to. Folks, this whole thing about the triumphal entry pulsates with spiritual and, and spiritual richness and paradox and excitement. But it all combines to make a demand. Which lamb? Which crowd? What kind of blood do you want to look to to atone for your sin? Animal blood? Or the blood of deity? That, ladies and gentlemen, is why this story is in the New Testament four times. And what it does, after this public announcement of Jesus's, it asks you, to choose your lamb. Our Father, would you use this text in all of its beauty, in all of its profundity, in all of its paradox, in all of its excitement, in all of its Old Testament illusion. Use it all, Lord God. Use whatever part you see fit, but use it, O oh God. Use it to cause people to see that there are two crowds, there's two types of blood, and there's two lambs. And today is when they must choose. Do that, O oh God, for the sake of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.